Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part one of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Olympic hero, Jesse Owens. And while we're at it, why don't you head on over to Amazon and pick up a copy of my novel, Is That Your Final Answer? Or even read it for free on Kindle Unlimited. Now let's get started with our story about Jesse Owens. In 1936, Nazi Germany hosted the Summer Olympics in its capital, Berlin. Although the Nazi party did not come to power until 1933, two years after Germany's Olympic selection, Adolf Hitler recognized that this athletic competition was a perfect opportunity to generate propaganda and globally export powerful imagery of a newly transformed country. The result of Nazi preoccupation with race and ethnicity, Hitler also wished to use the games to underline the concept of the Aryan-German master race superiority through its expected competitive domination of other Olympic athletes from other countries and backgrounds. Although most Jews were excluded from the games, the United States did send 18 African-American athletes to compete. One of these athletes, Jesse Owens, won four gold medals, literally contradicting basic Nazi ideology on a world stage. Owens' dramatic performance was not only a remarkable international athletic achievement and political incident, but also an important milestone in American history, almost 11 years before Jackie Robinson broke Major League Baseball's racial prohibition. James Cleveland Jesse Owens was born on September 12, 1913, in Oakville, Alabama, the youngest of ten children. His father, Henry, was a sharecropper and the son of a slave, his mother, Emma, a homemaker. Oakville was a typically small, rural northwestern Alabama hamlet in which agriculture served as the chief employer of its residents. In the early 20th century, 80% of the sharecroppers who worked in the area were white, a demographic that served to increase the endemic racism that prevailed regionally. These individuals comfortable in the knowledge that their race provided at least one superior rung on the prevailing social ladder. Although the Owens family was quite poor, they were not destitute, and Henry Owens was able to provide at least basic sustenance. However, education was minimal and segregated. The local black school only opened sporadically with a volunteer teacher. As a child, Jesse Owens was barely literate. Although Henry Owens was personally terrified of joining the many African Americans who fled Southern poverty and a lack of opportunity, eventually his wife, having heard from relatives who had migrated to the industrial towns of the Midwest, convinced him to head north. 
the sharecroppers who made a living harvesting cotton were now being replaced by machinery, so Henry Owens and many like him really had no alternative. In Henry's case, some of his relatives settled in Cleveland, Ohio, a city that already, in the early 20s, had a reputation of being more racially tolerant than some of its American urban counterparts. Although racially and ethnically diverse, with many Eastern European immigrants, Cleveland already contained a large black ghetto on its east side, an area that most whites completely avoided. It was here that the Owens family first settled, Jesse's father and older brothers quickly finding employment in a steel mill. Although Jesse also found a menial job, he was enrolled in an elementary school only blocks from his house. This enrollment allegedly brought about his nickname. When called on, he responded with his initials, J.C. Owens. The teacher mistakenly heard this as Jesse, and when she asked if that was his name, he was too shy and polite to correct her. The name stuck for the rest of Owens' life. Because of his lack of education, Owens was placed several grades beneath his age group, but eventually made it to Fairmount Junior High School. Here he met Ruth Solomon, a 13-year-old who eventually became his high school sweetheart when he was 15. It was also in junior high school that Jesse's athletic ability started to manifest itself, especially in track and field, for which he seemed to have a natural aptitude. This talent was noticed by a school coach and physical education teacher, Charles Riley. Riley, a white man from a modest background, saw enough in Jesse to individually coach him before school and to regularly include him at his own family's dinner table and bring him breakfast during Owens' preschool workouts. As Owens had to work after school, these early sessions were the only time that the young athlete could spare for additional training. Riley also provided Jesse Owens with an interaction that became a fundamental influence. The coach successfully invited Charlie Paddock, the 1920 Olympic gold medal winner in the 100-meter dash and world record holder in many sprint distances, to address the students at Fairmount. Afterwards, Riley introduced him to Paddock, the impressionable 15-year-old, immediately deciding that he wanted to emulate the Olympic champion. His coach encouraged him by explaining that with hard work, the sky was the limit. Despite Jesse's teenage optimism, family issues put a damper on his athletic ambitions. His father was hit by a car and seriously injured in late 1929, an accident that ended his regular employment. This incident coincided with the stock market crash, an event that prompted most of the Owens family to drop out of school to seek work replacing their father's lost income. Emma Owens took in laundry and worked as a domestic, but by 1930, Jesse Owens was the only member of his family still in school. Probably as a sign of the times, he enrolled at East Technical High School, essentially a vocational school that focused on providing a skilled trade and prospective employment. Like most institutions of its kind, there was little emphasis on humanities or scholarship, and Owens was at best a mediocre student. But East Tech did have a track team, and Owens continued to excel in this sport. Riley able to help the official coach, who had minimal track and field experience or expertise. By his junior year in high school, Jesse was already receiving recognition as the most promising track and field athlete in Northeast Ohio. 
1932 and the Olympics in Los Angeles prompted Owens to try out for the Olympic track and field squad that would represent the U.S. Jesse traveled to Evanston, Illinois and Northwestern University to take part in a preliminary event, but he failed to advance to the next round, losing to older, more experienced competitors. Still, the experience exposed him to various other American track athletes, who no doubt gave him advice about his potential athletic career options. 1932 brought another milestone, albeit unexpected, the birth of his first daughter with his girlfriend, Ruth Solomon. The child was named Gloria, and it was three years before the couple married, Ruth's father not especially happy with this development. Ruth dropped out of school and went to work, initially relying mostly on her parents to help her raise her daughter. Jesse remained focused on high school and his track career. By his senior year, he was the premier high school track athlete in the country, actually setting or tying world records in the 100 and 200 yard dash only a few months after his senior year. Unlike today, in the 30s, track and field was a very popular national sport that attracted a great deal of attention. Several prominent academic institutions were interested in recruiting Jesse as a student athlete. In the current high-profile world of intercollegiate athletics, where most scholarship athletes live in athletic dorms, do not pay academic tuition, and frequently access meals at training tables, in Owens' era, most collegiate athletes were subjected to a completely different reality. Their scholarship consisted of a menial job that helped defray the cost of tuition, room, board, and books. Although Jesse briefly considered the University of Michigan based on a reputation of racial tolerance, he eventually decided to attend Ohio State, motivated by the promise of a job as an elevator operator in the state capitol building in Columbus. He spent the summer before college competing at track meets and pumping gas at a black-owned gas station in Cleveland. He rarely saw his daughter, his girlfriend's father still reluctant to encourage the relationship. As a black man, Jesse Owens was barred from any on-campus official Ohio State housing. He resorted to living about a quarter of a mile from the school in a cheap boarding house in a black section of town. No off-campus public restaurant or decent movie theaters near the school permitted black customers. 1930s Columbus, Ohio was as segregated as the Deep South. Even Jesse's job as an elevator operator consigned him to a position in the rear of the state house in the freight area. The public elevators in the front of the building were staffed by white Ohio State football and basketball players. Owen's lack of any real study habits was underlined by a mediocre academic performance that had him on academic probation by the end of his freshman year. But, under the guidance of coach and former Ohio State track athlete and star Larry Snyder, Owen still excelled athletically and was named an AAU All-American after his freshman year. Because freshmen could not compete at the varsity level, it was Jesse Owens' sophomore year that established him as not only a remarkable athlete, but an American phenomenon. Larry Snyder had worked with him to tweak some of the technical aspects of his style, and this collaboration generated an outcome that still remains athletically unprecedented. On May 25, 1935, Owens traveled to Ann Arbor to the Big Ten Championship meet at the University of Michigan,
Owens was scheduled to compete in four events, the 100-yard dash, the long jump, the 220-yard dash, and the 220 low hurdles. But Owens was almost pulled from the meet before he even got started, the result of a back injury he suffered while fooling around with some of his roommates. Agreeing to assess his condition on an event-by-event basis, Larry Snyder let Jesse see how he did it in his first scheduled event, the 100-yard dash. At 3.15 p.m., Owens knelt at the starting line, and after his typical slow start, a steady acceleration allowed him to easily win the race. The only question was the time, three timers each clocking the winner. All three clocked Owens between 9.3 and 9.4 seconds, and closer to the faster number. But based on the prevailing practice of the time period, the higher number was official, 9.4 seconds, Owens still tying the world record. No one would officially run in 9.3 seconds for 13 years. Ten minutes later, trying to conserve energy, Jesse took one long jump to break the existing world record by over half a foot, a record that remained unbroken for 25 years. His effort would have placed him seventh as late as the 2008 Olympic Games, 73 years later. Next, nine minutes after the long jump, at 3.34 p.m., was the 220-yard dash, which he won with a winning time of 20.3 seconds, three-tenths of a second faster than the existing record. At 4 p.m., Owens ran the 220 low hurdles. He was not a particularly good hurdler, but used his superior speed to compensate. On this day, he became the first competitor to break 23 seconds in the event, winning by over five yards with a time of 22.6 seconds. In 45 minutes, Jesse Owens had broken or tied four world records. Even more incredible, officially, because his time was faster than the existing but shorter 100-meter and 200-meter hurdling records, he was also credited with breaking those records as well, six in all. Carl Lewis and Mark Spitz eventually provided athletic performances across a range of events that are similar to Jesse's feet, but these happened over several days and even a week, not in 45 minutes. The response of the Ann Arbor crowd was so intense and enthusiastic that it is alleged that Owens had to leave the locker room facility by sneaking out of a back window. Overnight, he was transformed from accomplished amateur athlete to a national star. Front page news across the United States, and his feet even mentioned in print by Will Rogers. Returning late Saturday night to his family home in Cleveland, Owens was again rescued by his former coach, Charles Riley, and taken to the much quieter Riley family Sunday dinner. Newspaper articles already discussed Owens as the world's most famous track athlete and began to anticipate his appearance in the 1936 Olympics. This attention also had a negative aspect not unlike today's celebrity obsession, and Jesse Owens' private life became no longer private. In June of 1935, the Ohio State track team was scheduled to travel to California to compete against several Western schools requiring lengthy stays in the Southern California area. Jesse Owens was quickly linked in newspapers with Quincella Nickerson, the daughter of a prominent black Los Angeles businessman. 
After several accounts and amorous photographs of Owens and Ms. Nickerson appeared in various publications, Owens was actually quoted as saying that he was engaged. Ruth Solomon was not pleased and managed to get Jesse on a long-distance phone call as the Ohio State team arrived in Lincoln, Nebraska for the AAU championships. What was discussed remained private, but much more ominously, a Cleveland journalist traveled to Nebraska to confront Owens with a threat to publish information about his illegitimate child unless Jesse got married. Although Owens was previously unbeatable during this Western swing, he did poorly at Lincoln, losing events for the first time on July 4, 1935. Undoubtedly, his domestic situation weighed heavily on his mind. He took an overnight train back to Cleveland and married Minnie Ruth Solomon on July 5, 1935, in her parents' living room. Putting this domestic drama behind him did not end Jesse's sudden slump. One of his main competitors in the 100-yard dash, Euless Peacock of Temple University, including the meet in Nebraska, beat him five straight times. Suddenly, Owen's status as America's main threat in Berlin was undermined by Peacock's sudden emergence. A summer back in Cleveland, doing little more than pumping gas and spending time with his family, seemed like an appropriate mental and physical break for a college junior, previously literally running at breakneck speed. The fall brought an optimistic return to Ohio State, as well as the promise of competing for a spot on the American Olympic team and possibly performing in the 1936 Olympics. But, once again, an external obstacle began to present a serious impediment to this optimistic aspiration. While many Americans, especially those involved in athletics, were enthusiastic about accepting the challenge of competition against such a high-profile and formidable adversary as Nazi Germany, a growing sentiment also suggested that the U.S. should not participate in the 1936 Olympics at all. Both the Winter Games, scheduled for the Bavarian Alpine resort town of Garmisch-Partenkirchen, and the Summer Games, scheduled for Berlin, would take place against the political backdrop of the increasingly volatile and controversial Nazi government. A succession of increasingly discriminatory edicts in Germany concerning German-Jewish participation in athletic clubs, culminating in 1935 with the blatantly racist and anti-Semitic Nuremberg laws, codifying the denial of fundamental civil rights to German Jews, created an uproar among the governing bodies of American politics. In late 1935, the AAU officially voted to boycott the 1936 Olympic Games, unless Germany relaxed its prohibition against the participation of especially Jewish athletes. Conversely, and fortunately from Nazi Germany's perspective, the head of the American Olympic Committee, Avery Brundage, was adamantly opposed to any interference in American Olympic participation due to politics. Brundage, a wealthy and dictatorial administrator, once famously stated that the Olympic Games belonged to the athletes and not to the politicians. He officially traveled to Germany to assess the situation, and after a series of carefully choreographed interactions with German officials, he was able to convince the IOC to agree to U.S. participation. But this did not end the controversy. 
in the U.S., Nazi attitudes towards black and other ethnic groups, in addition to Jews, were also controversial. The NAACP officially supported a boycott of the games concerned not only about German attitudes, but also the potential danger to any black participants. This opposition was not monolithic. In fact, many athletes and journalists questioned why black athletes should oppose Nazi attitudes in a foreign country, but have to accept institutionalized racism in the U.S., including black athletes routinely being barred from some Deep South track meets. Many black athletes, including Jesse Owens, also recognized the Games as a unique opportunity to represent the United States and potentially benefit from athletic success financially. Personally, Jesse was also involved in some setbacks that affected both his reputation and literal athletic standing. After flunking a psychology class and performing poorly in his other coursework, Owens was declared academically ineligible for the fall semester. Although the indoor winter season was not as prestigious as the spring competition, this was not a good start, especially after the lackluster finish of mid-1935. Unlike today's lax amateur athletic environment, the regulations concerning amateur status were both rigorous and frequently arbitrary. In the fall of 1935, the AAU notified Owens that his amateur status was being investigated based on his employment as an honorary page in the Ohio State Legislature. The job was essentially a small stipend and came with potentially zero obligation because it covered a summertime period where most legislative committees were not even in session. Technically, this fell under the heading of payment for a no-show job, which was specifically and strictly forbidden by the AAU. Although an investigation officially cleared Owens of any wrongdoing, the mere suspicion prompted the organization to inform him in early December of his removal from the list of finalists for the prestigious Sullivan Award, annually presented to the best amateur athlete in the U.S. Golfer Bobby Jones and track athlete Glenn Cunningham were among previous winners of the award, and eventual winners included Carl Lewis, Florence Griffith Joyner, Peyton Manning, Bill Bradley, and Michael Phelps, among many other notable names that an individual who set four amateur world records in 45 minutes, probably the most remarkable accomplishment in amateur athletic competition history, was denied this honor over such a petty matter, is unfortunate indeed. Eventually, Jesse was able to improve his GPA and became eligible again in the spring of 1936. At the Penn Relays, he won the long jump and the 100-meter dash. Unfortunately for Euless Peacock, the sprinter completely tore his hamstring during a preliminary heat, an injury so severe that Peacock was unable to make the 1936 Olympic Games. Owens qualified easily, winning the 100 and 200 meter sprint and the long jump competition at the Olympic trials at Randall's Island. His chief American competition came from Ralph Metcalf in the 100 and Mac Robinson in the 200. Robinson, the older brother of future Brooklyn Dodger, Jackie Robinson. Eighteen black Americans qualified for the U.S. Olympic team, two of them women, almost four times the number of African-American competitors at the 1932 Olympic Games in Los Angeles. 
This was somewhat of a comforting development in the black community after the shocking knockout of Joe Lewis by German Max Schmeling, a stunning outcome that was trumpeted by Nazi propagandists as a predictable victory by an Aryan superman over the inferior black boxer only six weeks before the Olympic trials. The entire team set sail from New York on July 15th on the SS Manhattan. Although he received some attention upon leaving the U.S., Owens kept a low profile on board the ship. The same could not be said for his Olympic teammate, Eleanor Holm Jarrett. Holm Jarrett was a gold medal winning swimmer at the 1932 Olympics who was a favorite to medal again at Berlin. Following her 1932 success, she signed a Warner Brothers contract and toured the country, singing and performing. Unlike some of the other starry-eyed Olympians, Holm Jarrett was married to band leader Art Jarrett and ignored the strict training guidelines imposed by the AOC concerning alcohol consumption. Holm Jarrett, who frequently boasted that she trained on champagne and cigarettes, hung out regularly on board the Manhattan with journalists, staying up to the late hours indulging heavily in her favorite bubbly. This behavior subjected her to several warnings from Olympic chaperones, but Holm Jarrett continued to ignore these admonitions. Finally, the night before the ship was to arrive in Germany, the 22-year-old got publicly intoxicated again, and when the ship docked at Bremerhaven, Brundage officially kicked her off of the team. While this received harsh media criticism, many of America's foremost journalists' personal friends of Holm Jarrett, this was the type of unilateral decision-making that furthered Avery Brundage's reputation as an impulsive authoritarian chauvinist. In a controversy in 1932 concerning the amateur status of the trailblazing female Olympian, Babe Diedrich Zaharias, Brundage publicly stated that he didn't think women even belonged in the Olympics. He then tried to ban her from amateur athletics for appearing in an advertisement for milk. While Owens stayed completely out of the spotlight prior to the Games, he also had the wise Ralph Metcalf, a black participant in the 1932 Olympics and a more experienced athlete. Metcalf met with the entire African-American contingent prior to the Manhattan reaching Germany, and he cautioned his teammates about the upcoming political turmoil they would face. Stay away from politics and political debate and focus on your event. You are here to compete. Later, Owens credited Metcalf as a calming influence on a youthful and anxious group of young adults. When the American team was conveyed to Berlin, the women were lodged in a modest dormitory near the Olympic Stadium, the men transported to a spacious, specially constructed village with brick buildings next to an artificial lake. Some of these buildings had small televisions installed to transmit video of the upcoming games, the host country eager to show off the latest technology. Additionally, any racist or anti-Semitic slogans or graffiti, both official and unofficial, were ordered removed by the Nazi government, Germany wanting to perpetuate the illusion of a tolerant and modern society. Jesse Owens spent the week leading up to the beginning of the Games attempting to exercise and train on the track near the Olympic Village, but there was no restriction on public access, and he spent most of his time fending off press, photographers, and autograph seekers. The Games officially opened on April 1st with the Olympic torch 
conveyed from Greece for the first time in the history of the modern games, igniting the Olympic flame. The host country had constructed a brand new stadium, which held over 100,000 spectators, packed for the opening ceremony. The U.S. team created controversy from the first official moments of the games, the flag bearer refusing to dip the flag in deference to the leader of the host nation, in this case Adolf Hitler, who was present to deliver an official welcome to all of the athletes. Although the U.K., Switzerland, and the Philippines also followed suit, refusing to adhere to this traditional custom, with the presence of Hitler and the subsequent entrance of the German team, the crowd burst into a euphoric greeting. This and most of the proceedings of the games, eventually meticulously filmed by director Leni Riefenstahl, her work completely underwritten by the Nazi government. This production, another Olympic first. Jesse Owens and his roommate and college teammate David Albritton returned to the Olympic Village after the ceremony. If Owens was looking forward to finally getting started in the morning with a heat in the 100-meter dash, Albritton must have been apprehensive. His only event was the high jump, to be completed in its entirety on the first day of competition. His main competitor was another black American and co-world record holder, Cornelius Johnson. It was not until very late that night that both men were able to get some sleep. The next morning, they took the shuttle bus to the stadium. For a gold medal in the 100 meters, Jesse Owens would have to win four consecutive races, but the competition in Monday's first two heats was minimal. Several sprinters in the Big Ten, much tougher competition. Jesse cruised easily to victory in the first heat by seven yards and the quarterfinals by four yards, breaking his own world record in a time of 10.2 seconds. While Owens' victories were not a surprise, what was astonishing was the response of the crowd when his name was announced and after he crossed the tape in first place. Anticipating that a German crowd politically attuned to the current Nazi master race theories would ignore or even vent hostility toward a black American, instead the massive crowd roared their approval. Elsewhere in the stadium, two German athletes were generating their own excitement. Hans Volke and Adelie Tilly Fleischer won gold in the men's shot put and women's discus, respectively, the first track and field Olympic gold medals ever won by Germany. Afterwards, they were summoned to Hitler's personal box, where both were personally congratulated by Hitler and Hermann Goering. Later in the afternoon, when three Finns swept the medals in the 10,000 meters distance race, they were also invited to Hitler's box and congratulated. This behavior precipitated one of the most controversial and widely dissected incidents in Olympic history. Cornelius Johnson did prevail in the high jump, the last track and field event of the day. Larry Albritton remained tied with two other athletes for second place, and additional jumps were necessary to award the silver and bronze, with Albritton at least officially finishing second. But by the time the event concluded, and with the weather getting progressively colder with rain starting to fall, Adolf Hitler left the arena before the high jump medal ceremony and without a personal invitation to the black American Johnson. This did not go unnoticed, especially by the American press, who focused the first day's coverage on this perceived snub. It also was noticed by Henri de Baillet-Latour, the president of the International Olympic Committee 
who was hoping to lower the volume on politics and did not want Hitler to become the focal point of the current games. He is said to have either forbidden Hitler to personally congratulate winners or to have told Hitler that he needed to congratulate every winner, regardless of race or country of origin. The most popular interpretation is that Hitler, figuring that at least one black man, Jesse Owens, was a shoe-in to win at least one medal, then decided to stop publicly congratulating any of the winners. This controversy had immediate relevance. On Monday, the second day of the Games, when Jesse Owens lined up against five other finalists in the 100-meter sprint at 5 o'clock in the afternoon, he was only seconds away from winning one of the most high-profile events of the entire Olympic Games and the unofficial title of the world's fastest human. Owen shrugged off the ruling that his previous day's world record had been downgraded due to wind enhancement, easily beating American Frank Wyckoff and four other runners in the semifinals. Now the only major hurdle to the gold medal was Ralph Metcalf, as well as Jesse's assignment to lane one. With distance runners having already raced on the muddy cinder track, Owen's lane was already uneven and the most rutted of the six. Sprinters also did not race with blocks. Instead, they used a trowel to dig small holes to enable a fast start. But at least the race officials moved each competitor over by one lane to get Jesse out of the slop. The tension built in the completely quiet stadium, as the starter formally told the runners to be off the plaza, on your marks, fertig, ready. Jesse Owens anticipated the pistol shot of the start perfectly getting out to an uncharacteristically brilliant start. Normally, he got off to a slow beginning and wore down opponents with increasing speed. But in this race, he shot out with a commanding lead, which only increased as he approached the midpoint of the race, his comfortable stride in great contrast to the other runners who seemed to be flailing and struggling by comparison. Metcalf closed some ground in the last few yards, but Owens finished a full tenth of a second ahead of him equaling the world record in 10.3 seconds. Remarkable, considering the condition of the surface. Osendarp of Holland beat out Wyckoff to avert a complete American sweep. Hitler did not publicly congratulate any of the winners that day, including the German hammer thrower Karl Hein, who also won gold. Jesse Owens probably didn't even notice, calling the ceremony in which he received his medal and watched as the American flag rose to the playing of the star-spangled banner, the happiest moment of his entire career. Thank you for listening to part one of this podcast about Jesse Owens. Much of the information for this podcast came from the book, Jesse Owens, An American Life by William J. Baker and Triumph, The Untold Story of Jesse Owens and Hitler's Olympics. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, Please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes.
And if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website.